I'm Avery Swanson of Keeping Together, and this is the Brewer to Brewer podcast from All About Beer. My guest is Blake Tires of Creature Comfort Brewery, and he is here for a conversation that goes beyond the brew house and into topics that matter to brewing professionals and curious beer drinkers. First, please visit allaboutbeer.com and follow on social media at allaboutbeer. And to support journalism in the beer space, check out patreon.com slash allaboutbeer. We'll get into the conversation in just a moment, but first, this message. First Tea is a proud sponsor of the Brewer to Brewer podcast. Some of the brightest brewers across the country have discovered the First Tea Advantage. Hill Farmstead, Sweetwater Brewing Company, and Angry Chair are among the many who have used First Tea's unique and quality teas and botanicals to create top-rate beers. First Tea focuses on being direct, flexible, and fast. You can find out more about First Tea's collaboration with brewers and tea ingredients by visiting firsttea.com slash blog. That's F-I-R-S-D-T-E-A dot com slash blog. All right. A bit about my guest today. Blake Tires is a founding member of the Creature Comforts Brewing Team and has been with CCBC since 2014. In his role as the Senior Director of Curiosity, Blake helps to to grow the Curious Collection, limited release brands, to serve as a creative collaborator and to engage our industry colleagues. He has also served on the Georgia Craft Brewers Guild Board of Directors, presented at the American Society of Brewing Chemists Conference, and has received an honorable mention from the North American Guild of Beer Writers for his contributions to good beer hunting. Lake, I am very excited for this conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Hey, thanks for inviting me, Avery. It's an honor. The honor is mine. Uh, so, you know, we've been good friends for many years at this point, and you've always been one of my favorite people to chat with about beer and beverage and many other topics. Um, I don't want to blow too much hotter up your skirt, but I think that your approach to beer making is extremely inspiring. You seem to embrace both the science and the art of what you do. And I think that every time we chat, I walk away energized and feeling like I've learned something new. So I think where I want to start is just getting kind of your story. Like, how did you get here? What brought you to the beer industry? And, uh, you know, what has your path looked like since you became a brewer? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, thanks. I'll say the same. Um, <laughs> you, you you directly have an influence after we talk on some beers that we made in the past. And uh, it's been for the better always. Um, so let's see, I guess it starts with just kind of for me being indoctrinated into the culture of beer. Uh, I was lucky that um, my dad and my father's side of the family is from England. And so the baseline for beer was a little bit higher than um, what you would expect. So uh, growing up, I always saw bass around and it wasn't uncommon for Cervana pale ale to be in there as well. Um, so, uh, also with that came the mentality of, Hey, if you ever want a beer, just talk to me about it. Um, and let's have a beer. So my first beer was actually, uh, a cask of a uh, pint of old speckled hen in London with my dad and my grandfather when I was like 14. Amazing. And, <laughs> and that was, that is amazing. <laughs> that was my beginning of getting into beer. Um, and Throughout all that, as I kind of got older, you know, I went through different waves, um, certainly drank my fair share of bad beer in college, um, but then started wanting to drink the more flavorful stuff like uh, Honey Brown and uh, Michelob, uh, like 
regular Michelob and yes. any beer with a little bit more flavor. Um, and then I had a friend of mine that I met that uh, in college was a home brewer. And it didn't really strike me right away that that's something I wanted to do. I just thought it was pretty amazing and I was really into it. At the time, I was also really into just beer, the culture of beer. That's kind of where I started. I didn't start with making beer. So I would go to, uh, there was a, a pub in Athens that would do a cask tapping every, like the first Wednesday of every month. And um, a guy there, Owen Ogletree in Athens, he would curate um, an experience where they actually showed uh, Michael Jackson's old show, The, the Beer Hunter. So, so we'd be good. drinking Cascale and watching that. And I was, you know, 21 and I was like, this is, this is cool stuff. So, uh, got into all that and then moved to Decatur, um, and started going to the brick store pub, uh, right out of college. And, um, I think that's one of the best beers bar beer bars in the world. And, um, certainly got to experience a lot of things, um, in Georgia, our ABV cap on beer that was allowed to be sold was 6% until 20. 14, I think. Yeah. Um, and so like, I remember vividly, like when stone launched in Atlanta and we had a tap takeover at Brickstore pub. Um, and then along about that same time when I was living in Decatur, um, I discovered that my grandfather used to homebrew and the stories were always about the, the bottles exploding in the garage and things like that. Um, <laughs> he wasn't a guy for precision, but more of a guy for just kind of doing things himself. And uh, so I grabbed his old home brewing kit that happened to still be at my grandmother's house. And um, I started making beer on it. And um, it really simple at first, you know, doing like mixed extract brewing and stuff like that. Um, And then uh, I moved out of the country and I came back and through all that, I I ended up with like no home brewing gear. But through all that time, I was still very much engaged in beer uh, as a thing. Like I, I lived in New Zealand at the time. And now there's a very big uh, beer scene in New Zealand, but at the time there wasn't, there was, uh, you know, there's no uh, tier system. So it was all tied houses. There's no distribution network for small breweries. So um, I would actually like get my friends to send me a case of American beers to uh, New Zealand, which was kind of crazy in hindsight, but, um, and my friends there thought I was nuts, but uh you know, I always wanted to stay on top of it. And then I came back and I had two friends that had re- really nice homebrewing kits. So it's kind of like a gypsy homebrewer. I started using their uh, homebrewing setups, um, got them to, you know, teach me what they knew and then use their stuff to start brewing at home. And over a few years, um, it became like a really big passion of mine, entered competitions, was in a homebrew club. It's funny. And the homebrew club I was in was a lot of brewers around Atlanta now that um, have breweries. Um, like halfway crooks. That's how we met. Uh, we were in the same home really? club and we lived together. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't um, know that. Yeah. So, um, it's just, you know, it, it's, it's where we all kind of got together at that point in time. Um, and then, uh, a friend of a friend, the guy, one of the guys whose systems I was making beer on, he was college buddies with the guy starting up creature comforts. And he's like, Hey, I got some friends starting up a brewery. Uh, they need a brewer that is creative and, um, you seem to fit that bill. You should meet him. And so when I got introduced to him, I was just kind of like, I'm not going to give you guys the option of hiring anybody else. I'm going to be your guy. (laughs) So, uh, I was photographer at the time and, um, decided to stop doing that and, uh, go help open creature comforts. And that's really, um, what took me off to the races. And since then I've really been passionate about the culture and philosophy of beer making and flavor in general. Um, 
always like to understand what makes people think the way they do about making a beer instead of just how they're making the beer. Because uh, I think you learn a lot from studying how people think about making beer. And that's certainly what I did when I was trying to learn how to make different styles of beer. I would just do deep dive case studies and research everything I possibly could about a brewer and everything they said in every interview to figure out how they're thinking about making beer. And that's really kind of where I got. Um, and now, uh, yeah, here I am 10 years later at Creature Comforts, uh, been doing the thing. It's been pretty, pretty wow. good. So you've been at Creature for 10 years at this point. Yeah, this is our 10th year uh, open. We had our ninth anniversary in April. Wow. How wild. So over the course of your time there, um, you know, I feel like you've done a lot of different things. And one of the last times we hung out, which I think may have been, honestly, it's been too long. It's been maybe almost a year. Um, we, I think, would have been at Snallygaster and you were telling me that your role was about to be changing. Um, mm -hmm. So your new, your title in your bio is Director of Curiosity, which is probably one of the best titles I think I've heard. Um, I love that. <laughs> um, so I guess I would like for you to tell us a little bit more about what that title kind of means, what your role in, you know, with that title is. Um, like, you know, what does a typical day look like for you at work? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, being like, well, we opened up, we have five people. And so you kind of do a little bit of everything. Um, through that time, I was a brood and did, you know, everything in production at the beginning. Um, and then I was our first head brewer. And then I kind of got more specialized into managing our barrel program, as you know, after a while, um, as we continued to grow and be more specialized. Uh, and then um, with the way things are, like we've, we've grown quite a bit now, we make a whole lot of beer. Uh, and it, it changed where last year I was kind of managing our original brewing facility um, and trying to operate it kind of like a small brewery with inside of a bigger brewery. And there were some really good things that came along with that and also some challenges. Uh, it doesn't necessarily make sense to kind of have those redundancies in an organization. Um, so this year I moved over where I'm actually not directly brewing anymore, um, but I'm helping give birth an idea to the limited release program of all of our beers. Um, and working with our brewing team and those guys to kind of help generate the idea behind the beers and making compelling stories behind it, um, asking questions on what should we be exploring for, um, you know, like processes and ingredients and styles and what do we want to do, as well as in connecting that piece to the consumer facing market and the accounts and like, how do we sell um, all these different styles of beer? Because um, what we've really done over the last couple of years, and we've always kind of felt that we like to be brewers that have, um, the skill set to brew kind of all these classic styles. And we really enjoy making kind of a little bit of everything. Um, but it's not necessarily easy to always just sell a little bit of everything. Um, so that was kind of a big thing that I took on was figuring out how we are going to connect the dots from, um, you know, we want to make all sorts of styles of beer and I, you know, knew there were these accounts and, and plate bars out there that wanted to be able to serve all of those, but those aren't necessarily also the bars that say like, we just want your IPA or whatever. So creating that system where we're able to create, like sell those beers through kind of a pipeline um, without distracting away from our major market moves, because, you know, frankly, you know, those like Tropicalia is still our number one selling beer. Um, 
but we felt like it's important part of our culture and what we want to do. And also we get so much as like brewing expertise and reps and front of house expertise and reps and sales expertise and reps by going through all these different styles and learning how to do the different processes to make those beers or how to talk about those beers or the culture behind those beers. You know, I think there's learning opportunities everywhere across the organization. Um, and that's where like kind of curiosity comes in. We call our limited release program, the curious collection. And for us, fundamentally crave curiosity is one of our fundamental, um, pillars It's one of our, uh, well, I can't think of the word right now, but it, it is values. like we have, thank you. Thank you. It's one of our values. Company yeah. values. Yeah. We have <laughs> a set of values and one of them is crave curiosity. And we feel like, um, I mean, that's always been there since the beginning by continuing to ask questions and really being curious. It usually leads you down a path of knowledge and also um, understanding yourself and understanding the world, which we felt like. Um, allows you to enjoy the creature comforts of life better. So being that that is like a fundamental value of ours and I have that title, it sounds kind of hokey. Um, and I, I go through this a lot because, you know, I'm meeting people and I explain my title, but I I truly think it it's important and I try to take it seriously that um, I, you know, I was, my, my joke is I try to help people ask the right questions. Um, but I want to keep our people and people we, are serving beer to all across, you know, our footprint, um, engaged in beer and in curiosity and learning. And it's just more fun that way. And we all learn something from it. And I think our beers are better for it. You know, even if we're totally. making, um, you know, a, an IPA and a lager is our top two selling brands by taking these other styles and going through them and trying different things we're we're learning pieces that can go apply to those main brands or just be, you know, ways we can make our organization better. So, um, yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of what I do now. So I do a lot of education. I go teach classes. I talk to folks, uh, and also help, um, challenge the brew team with like authenticity to the style and, um, you know, ideas and, uh, you know, really try to create and curate a great beer program that we, that we make. That's amazing. Yeah. I, I love the idea of curiosity is something that you can begin to cultivate within your business or organization. Um, you know, when I started keeping together a few years back, one of my kind of like mission, the mission statement, I guess, of the company was to increase the collective empathy of the world and through beer. And I've spent plenty of time kind of digging into what that actually means. And there, I guess, to put it into more of a succinct conversation here, uh, I think that you cannot really have empathy if you do not have curiosity. Like you need to have curiosity, you need to have a little bit of self-awareness and you need to have the interest in understanding other people and you know other topics in order to really grow. So I think that it's an incredible thing that Creature Comforts has developed this position for you. Um, like you become kind of the connective tissue across the business, you know, bringing what would otherwise be pretty disparate uh, departments together. Um, honestly, I could see that becoming very much the direction that a lot of other companies begin to move in as, at least within the beer industry, as they continue to kind of come up against some of the challenges that the industry has seen over the last few years. So I think that's pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's, 
Like I like, you know, I'll go talk to distributors and I'll teach them about our beers and how we talk about our beers. But then I also sit in leadership meetings where, you know, I could uh, try to challenge people to actually be curious. To your point, I think truly understanding not just your medium or your craft by being curious, but also other people, like what you're saying, like if you're truly curious about others and you remain that way, it allows you to offer so much more grace to humans and totally. um, understanding. And um, it also makes you want to sit down and have a beer with them and ask them what they're all about. Right. So that's what it comes down to is that fundamentally, like we try to keep people and bring people together, like um, um, like creating culture around bringing people together is kind of the most important thing for beer. I think that everyone aligns with the creature comforts and um, it's like, if you got a, you know, it's the old, it goes back to the old, like English, at least in my head references, the pub is where you learned about what's going on in your town. It's where you talked about problems with your neighbors. Um, but it was all over a beer. And so it wasn't, we're going to have a fight. It was, we're going to respect each other and be curious about each other's opinions. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I love that. I think it's a great thing. You just gave me chills talking about it. But. <laughs> yeah. I similarly have goosebumps. I'm like, I, beer is like so much bigger than you know, the day-to-day brewing and some of the, uh, I don't know, the crap that we have to deal with on like sales side and things like that and trying to explain to people what we're doing. But at the end of the day, it is such an incredible tool of connection and just like, or rather avenue of connection with other humans. And I'm, I know you are probably, you feel similarly that like, I'm very grateful to be uh, a beer maker and to be in this industry. So, um, one question I do have for you about kind of this transition from being like a full-time production employee and being kind of in the trenches and sweating and, you know, all of the amazing elements of actually working production. Um, I feel like for a lot of us brewers, as we get older, both physically and, uh, you know, in our roles at our respective breweries, I think most people come to a point where they're like, well, am I going to do this forever? Like my back hurts, <laughs> you know, or like, cause it's not, you know, it can be pretty grueling work. Um, and at some point I feel like most of us get to this place where like, well, okay, am I going to be doing the manual labor forever? Or, you know, is it, will moving into a more um, administrative or management type role be a more sustainable long-term career path? And I think a lot of brewers, struggle with this kind of transition at least I feel like I have struggled a little bit with that and I've talked to a number of other people that have kind of shared similar ideas but you know I feel like brewers are very proud to be in the trenches doing those things um and there's almost kind of a like I don't want to go be on the computer all the time but at some point you know you can't be breaking your back doing the manual labor thing forever and I think to be able to bring the institutional knowledge that you have and the process knowledge you have into other elements of a business is really a fantastic way of transitioning away from that manual labor. So like, how has that process really been for you kind of, you know, like psychologically, like, have you, did you struggle with that transition at all? Or were you kind of uh, more excited to move into more of a liaison type um, administrative type role? Oh yeah. We're going to talk about this for the rest of the podcast. <laughs> no, I think um, there's a lot of pieces to this. Um, and I'm going to try to make sure I can remember to talk about all of them, but um, first off, you're totally right. Um, 
you know, I was a full on, I would say production employee for probably seven years. Um, many of those years, uh, I was doing overnights, you know, and for up until about year four, I think we were still on our original 30 barrel brew house and we got up to doing like 35,000 barrels on a 30 barrel. Wow. So we were brewing 24, five and it was just bonkers. Um, and that was, um, physically demanding, um, for sure, you know, um, but then there is absolutely this channel of growth that allows you to come from that where you, you can specialize in whatever your craft is. And, you know, I was going to kind of down the barrel road route and, um, doing all those things and so much of your identity, particularly, you know, I, I don't know if it feels different now, maybe it's just because of we're older or whatever, but, you know, I guess it was five years ago or so, you know, like so much of my identity was as being a brewer for creature comforts. And that was what got me to travel to places. It got me to talk to people. It's what opened doors and opportunities for me to be able to experience things. Um, and even now, like when I meet up with old friends and I tell them I don't brew anymore, I can like detect a level of disappointment in them. And <laughs> yeah. it's, um, really challenging on your like mental psyche because I personally think that what I'm doing now is maybe more challenging than what I was doing before in the sense that I'm trying to, uh, be a leader and inspire people to become the best versions of themselves as brewers and as people making beer or as people who are selling beer or talking about it. Um, and that is a completely different skill set, obviously, than making beer. But it's a long-term reward that it's probably higher than making beer. Like there's nothing better than like making a lights out beer and serving to someone and seeing them just light up. I love that. Yeah. But I guess I said there's nothing better, but maybe something is better than that. And <laughs> What it can be is helping more people experience that, you know, where you can help get more people to be able to see their vision and their dream come true. And um, there's a, and I talk to myself in my head about this kind of stuff all the time where it's like, you know, I just need to have confidence and, um, and complacency with myself that it's okay that I'm not, uh, you know, identified or, I don't hang my hat on being a brewer anymore. Um, I still know just as much as I knew before um, about making beer. Um, I could still help people. And that is really what I'm trying to do with that. And I think that's ultimately re more rewarding for me. Um, and it's funny, like now, I think before, I mean, just like a little aside, I think before, you know, I might get a bunch of inspiration five years ago from watching like a taco taco documentary versus now I'm like getting inspiration on being a leader from like Ted Lasso, like where it's, <laughs> how, you know, how can I help people be what they want to be in this space and offer um, a good way of life for them? Because um, I think when you're younger, you, you don't think as holistically about it. It's all in, you know, it's, um, it's all consuming, you know, when we were back in the day doing the grind of, of, uh, you know, getting the brewery up and running, it was, it was not a, not even close to a 40 hour a week job, you know, like you're all in all the time. Um, you know, not to mention you're, you're doing like 10 ish hour days or whatever, but you're also like when you're off, you're still in brewer mode thinking about it all the time. What beers can I make next? What's going on with that beer that's in the tank right now? What's that problem I got to solve? Um, so there's, yeah, there's a lot there. And I think over time, 
it's um you know i just realized that i need to derive my value from more more um what's the word i'm looking for more substantial things than just praise over making a cool beer right like my yeah. value should be wrapped in a more holistic experience about having a positive influence on humans and a culture of a place and a town and a city and a state um and that's where over time you know it started with little things like how many farms can i work with with my my, my projects and then now it's turned into you know, how can I help influence the direction of our company or the people that are other people leaders um, to create better jobs for those people or have a better impact on our community and things like that? It's not nearly as sexy as being the rock star or whatever, but I think ultimately it's probably um, it's probably more fulfilling long term thing. It's but it doesn't mean like I'm two-ish years into some transitions here, right? And um, it still feels like a, a constant thought process of like, you know, I just went to dinner last, like two weeks ago with some friends I haven't seen in, you know, five or six years. And I was like, oh, I'm not really brewing anymore. And I just get that, oh, well, <laughs> what do you do? And it's like, I do cool stuff. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, um, it's just different. Um, but I, uh, I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm grateful that, uh, that I've allowed this growth because what it does provide is a better balance for me from a work-life balance, like, um, much more happy in a holistic sense that, you know, I have engagements outside of brewing life and, um, it's uh, allowed me to, um, you know, just like I, I, I work from home a lot or I live in Atlanta now, so I'm able to move around and, and go to places and, and, and kind of take what I do with me and it's not some tied into being in the brew house all the time, you know, doing that stuff. So, um, you know, I, as you were asking the question, I was like making check marks in my head of like things to go through, but yeah, ultimately I think that's probably the most important part of it all is it is, it's just allowing grace for myself, um, because it is a challenging thing when your identity kind of moves. And now I'm realizing that I had so much creativity poured into brewing before that, um, I am for the first time in probably 20 years of working or so and going all the way back into like middle school where I don't have an active creative outlet. And so I'm working really hard to get that back in my life. Like I'm probably going to go buy a drum set again uh, here soon because I need to play music or something. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's just a shift where you, you know, you, you find healthy balance where the job doesn't have to be everything anymore. And it's a tough transition, but I think it, it's a, it's a healthy one to make. Yeah. I love all of that. And I think that that's really important for a lot of people in the beer industry to hear. Um, like you were saying, it's easy when you finally get yourself into that position that you really want to be like as a brewer and so much of your identity is wrapped up in it, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. You don't have to be uh, like you said, the rock star brewer in order to be, a major contributor to the things being made in the company as it's presented to uh, other people in the industry or to consumers or, or anything, you know, you can still be, uh, I don't know. It sounds like what you are doing, the position that you're in is creating a ton of value for the company. Um, and I think for any brewers that are out there that might be considering what is next after, you know, a decade or more of production, manual labor, like, 
you know, there are positions that you can create that really do further the interests of the company you're with and yourself creatively and, you know, in a career sense. So I think all of that's amazing. It allows me to grow, um, which is nice. You know, it's, it's a new challenge and looking at it that way, I think it's a little easier to take than just saying it's just different, right? It's yeah. a, it's a challenge for growth and, um, I appreciate it a lot. We are going to take a short break for this message and then come right back for more of this conversation with Blake Tires of Creature Comforts. First Tea is a proud sponsor of the Brewer to Brewer podcast. Some of the brightest brewers across the country have discovered the First Tea Advantage. Hill Farmstead, Sweetwater Brewing Company, and Angry Chair are among the many who have used First Tea's unique and quality teas and botanicals to create top-rate beers. First Tea focuses on being direct, flexible, and fast. You can find out more about First Tea's collaboration with brewers and tea ingredients by visiting firsttea.com slash blog. That's F-I-R-S-D-T-E-A dot com slash blog. All About Beer is back, and we're asking for your support to help provide the independent beer media this rich and colorful industry deserves. Visit our website, allaboutbeer.com, where we're frequently posting new content. And please consider throwing us a few bucks at patreon.com slash allaboutbeer. We have low-cost memberships for individuals and small and large companies alike. Every dollar goes to help produce new articles and podcasts. All right. Welcome back. So we left off kind of chatting a little bit about uh, transitioning from doing production into, you know, a little bit more of a like multifactorial type of position uh, within the the brewing space within creature comforts for you. Um, really, I think it's an inspiring story for a lot of brewers. You mentioned when you were talking about that, about kind of how you're approaching creativity and how, uh, you know, your, where you're finding inspiration has kind of evolved and changed over the years. You also mentioned drumming um and earlier when you were kind of talking about your story into beer you mentioned being a photographer so not everyone knows probably that you were in fact a drummer you didn't mention the fact that you uh were a big dancer and did dance you know teaching and all of these things so we're gonna have you talk about that for a second also yeah Um, and then (laughs) and then film and photography so one of the things that i'm very curious about and i know you and i've talked about this in the past one-on-one Um, but like, how do, how does your background and all of these different things, like clearly you're a very, uh, artistic and creative individual. How do you feel like these elements of who you are filter into your beer making? Um, and now in your current position, how do you feel like you are translating that kind of inspiration to what you do? That's a fun question. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so my creative outlet journey um, started probably when I was, I guess, in 11 or 12 or whatever, getting to sixth grade. Um, I joined band. Um, uh, a lot of my family, uh, my mom's side of the family is uh, musical. Both my uncles drum. Um, another uncle of mine's a hell of a guitar player. Um, and, you know, it, it's weird though, because my mom never really listened to music 
growing up. It's not her style, but I, I, I got into it pretty big. My stepdad's actually a professional trumpet player as well. He went to um, Berkeley College of Music. So there was a, a lot of musical influence around. And so I joined band and I did band all the way through college where I was like in the uh, marching band at UGA. Um, so music shapes a lot about how I think about beer and flavor mapping in my head. Um, and then, which I'll come back to that. But then after that, yeah, I, I, I dropped the marching band for two years. I did that two years in college. And then the last two years in college, I was in the university ballroom performance group. Um, and that was a lot of fun. You know, I, I didn't know what I was getting into at first. Uh, my love for the, for dancing really spawned from the music and being able to have an interaction with the music, um, and being a drummer, I was like, you know, I've, I've got, I've got rhythm, you know, that's not a problem. I just got to learn how to move. Um, and I loved, I loved that a lot and it was a lot of fun. And then, um, outside of college, well, actually alongside all of that, my grandfather, uh, was also a photographer. And the same guy was a home brewer. Uh, you can tell I, I looked up to him a lot. Um, but I had like one of his old film cameras growing up. I remember going to like skate camp and signing up for the you know photography class. Um, I remember being in the dark room with him as a little kid. So then eventually, um, uh, before I was a brewer, I was doing photography as my job. I was, used to take photos on film and television. Um, and I did that for about four years. Um and yeah, right as that was like, I was landing the dream situation as a photographer where I was going to be paid well, had a career as a person, as an artist. And then I dropped that off to go help start this brewery up, which at the time, it's in hindsight, it seems crazy. At the time, it made total sense. Um, I was like, this is the thing I got to do. Um, and a lot of my friends thought I was kind of nuts, but they also didn't really challenge me on it because they saw that this is what I wanted to do. Um, so through all that, it's weird. I think brewing and photography are really similar creative disciplines in the sense that the more I've always looked at them both, like the more technical understanding you have, the more you have access to your palette of colors to play with, and you know how to shape your vision better. Your brushstrokes are better, if you will, of understanding how to put something together. And then that's the angle of my brain of how to um, think about the discipline of my craft. But then the idea of how to form that picture coming together comes from music where, you know, particularly once we were getting into barrels and I know you and I have talked about this quite a lot, but blending, I, I have a very musical um, place with where I, I, you know, when I'm blending barrels, I'm thinking about, trebles mids and bass i'm thinking about how we're putting chords together and creating like symphonic expressions of flavor rather than singular notes and that has been a lot of uh, our thread of how we created a barrel program for a long time was um you know pretty quickly we went from the put thing in a barrel get rid of the worst part and thing comes out of a barrel and that's your project to we have a Crayola cray box of barrels and we select which crayons we want to create the project, you know, which is oddly uh, how every other discipline of using barrels operates like winemakers and distilleries and all that. And brewers, the only ones that seem to be audacious enough to understand, to assume they know what's going to happen on the other side. But I was like, you know, it's all about blending for me and thinking about this. And um, I've certainly talked with like you and other like-minded individuals of the year that have really concreted that philosophy. 
And then I think about that even when writing regular recipes is thinking about how bitterness and sugar and overall intensity of a beer profile, how that all plays into how it fits. And for me, the thinking behind that is all musical. Absolutely. Um, and so I don't know, it's, you've had, I've had uh, a few projects that have come directly from that where it's just like, um, to think about how, okay, this is really cool. Like this hop note is cool, but instead of just saying, here's a hop that tastes like grapefruit, um, for example, why don't we play in that paradigm of taste like grapefruit and expand upon that so that the timbre to pull a musical word out of the hop it would be similar to like the timbre of a trumpet, but I also want to accompany that with the B flat of a clarinet or of a sousaphone or whatever. Um, you can tell there's more marching background, but um, <laughs> putting the music together helps you kind of think about creating more depth to that experience rather than being like a singular note. And sometimes a, a solo is cool, but often like the symphonic richness of a project or of, of, you know, of sound will make something more interesting. And I always thought, that way with blending beer. Um, like how do I, how do I create this symphonic resonance with beer flavor so that it's not just one thing, but it's better as a sum of its parts. So yeah. Um, that musical background certainly played in the way I thought about creating beers and still does. Um, and even telling the story about beers now, you know, I feel like, uh, when I give classes to people or try to talk to people about beer, it's really easy to kind of pull that metaphor in and say like, let me explain to you like what we're, what's going on here. Like hazy IPA, you know, you want to talk about hazy IPA. Yeah. Cool. The biggest thing you need to know about hazy IPA is, is it's, it's actually um, a, an IPA with contributions of yeast influence. And I don't mean on the palate. I don't think there should be a whole lot of yeast in your beer, but <laughs> the ester profile, I think is where it all began. Um, if you look back at the origins where people were like, you know, holy cow, like, the West Coast is an absence of ester influence, generally speaking, onto that IPA. And then where you look in the East Coast, there's kind of an addition of that ester influence and it allows you to emphasize or influence what those hops can taste like. Um, and, you know, that's how I think we got to the newer, the, the prototype of where the new hop growing is going as far as, far as like what hops are coming out. Like you look at like Nectaron. The way people, I think, try to achieve that flavor before Nectron existed was a combination of hops we had on hand and yeast esters. Um, and now the hop breeding is catching up to that influence. And actually people are pushing yeast as well, but it's ultimately that quest, right? And it's, I don't know, uh, sorry, I keep going on and on talking about it, but it's- No, uh, I love it. That's why I brought, <laughs> that's why I asked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, that's how I, it's uh, how, yeah, music certainly- played into that idea um of how i think flavor comes together and i can make sense of it in my head at least amazing yeah i am not a musically inclined individual unfortunately i very much enjoy music but i've never played anything and so it's very interesting to hear you talk about it i know i know enough about music vocabulary to be dangerous and understand what you're saying but i think the uh the analog kind of metaphors that you're mentioning as far as like treble bass and mid like tones and the way that you can kind of layer flavor, the way that you layer sound in order to create a really holistic symphonic kind of full body experience. In my opinion, like this is what separates really amazing world-class beer and world-class music from like 
more simple kind of sophomoric easy and I guess kind of I don't know what the word would be like you're just kind of adding two and two and it equals four like you, I don't know there's so much more that you can do when you kind of break things apart and then try to put them back together again if that makes sense hundred percent. And I use that now, um, as being more of a teacher, I'm trying to teach people how to blend. Um, you know, I try to use that idea, that metaphor, because like you said, it's easy, kind of easy to understand, you know, where mm -hmm. if you put it in the sense of like, this is kind of base and this is mids and it's just trebles and how we're going to put all this together. And then you can back into that. Like, where does this come from in relation to age and residual sugar and bitterness and roast and all these things that are more beer focused. But if you keep pulling it back to the analogy, then it keeps your brain kind of cataloging it and it, it helps it make sense. Um, just cause it, it's funny. Like as you were talking, I was thinking about like, if you hear like a brass line warm up and you hear them play like a simple chord progression, the, the final note as they cut off and how it just, the resonance there, that feeling is so satisfying and it's not too dissimilar to like a beautiful beer resonates on your palate. Your senses of absorbing it are different, um, but the, the satisfaction you have is there where in one sense you want to hear more and the other sense you should want to taste more. Um, I don't know. And that's, that's just like a place I want to be in. Totally. You know, it's interesting too, because I think about, uh, in making beer and talking about balance, right? I think for for both of us, balance is one of the most important elements of a really well-made beverage, whether it be wine or beer or cocktail or whatever. Um, how do you achieve that balance? How do you know rather that you have achieved that balance? And I think, I haven't really thought about it like this before, but in listening to you speak, it's like, it is like a resolution of the tension between the elements of the thing right when mm, that bitterness like that. yeah when that bitterness can kind of like it's present you know it's there you're engaging with that sensorial experience but then the bitterness it doesn't sit there and linger right it kind of it dances with the sweetness and it dances with the acidity and at the end of the sip there is resolution there isn't like one thing lingering on your palate hanging out when it shouldn't be loitering, you know, on your palate, it is, it is very much like a succinct completion of a sensory experience. Very interesting to think about. <laughs> yeah. I love it. It's, um, it's, uh, you know, I love the, the way you put that. It's just, you, you know, there's, there's balance in all different ways. And I think you're right that you, you create tension with one way or another, um, you know, understanding the intensity of a beer kind of helps you put that on a, a plane of perspective, you know, where I think you can achieve balance in a 14% barrel aged stout as much as you can in a 3% table beer, how you're mm -hmm. going to get there is going to be totally different, but they should have a resolution as you drink them where you're like, yeah, I'm here for this. And, um, you know, your, your consuming behavior will be different with those things, but they're supposed to be right. You know, they're, they're, you know, it's, you, they're not all ballads and they're not all hits, you know, you, you gotta, you gotta try different, different songs. So it's kind of the same kind of way. Yeah. I love that. Um, let's see. So I feel like over the years, especially the last maybe three to five years, many of our brewer friends, our mutual brewer friends, I feel like 
there's kind of a, I feel like people have been pretty jaded, um, you know, over the last few years and talking about, or having this conversation anyway, and kind of getting to the root of why we do what we do and uh, what gets us really excited about beer. I'd like to transition a little bit and talk about the future of the industry and kind of, you know, if you were to put on some rose colored glasses and look three to five years into the future, what do you see for the industry? What do you feel like, uh, I don't know, what are you excited about? What do you think brewers should be looking at? What do you think consumers might be transitioning into over the next couple of years? Yeah, I think, man, it's a tough one. Um, there's, there's an interesting thing where, you know, like I probably would have told you that I know more than I do at six years than at 10 years, if that makes any sense at all, where I think we were in such a time over the last decade of this whirlwind of like, you know, we went from what, 2000, 1500 breweries in the U S when we opened up to now there's like 10,000 and there's, um, there's this like gold rush of things happening where you can almost can do no wrong. Um, and there's a lot of enthusiasm from consumers um, to where I think we, it's hard for us, you know, in that passion and that fervor to really take that step back and really look at it as like a, a larger perspective, you know, even in the American beer scene, if you think about what Sierra Nevada opened up in like 78, something like that, or whatever, when they, um, you know, started with what their, stout and then later on the pale ale and then looking into the 90s you have the class of the 90s a lot of brands like a lot of breweries open up in the mid you know mid 90s like 95 96 you see like the big guys you know i think that's when like stone and goose and deschutes and all those folks opened around that time and then their perspective is going to be completely different you know than where we are now and um i think it before they were just trying to get anybody to pay attention to beer with flavor and now we're saying, uh, maybe not that flavor. I want you to, to subscribe to my particular flavor. And I think where our opportunity lies is realizing that like, one, when you're making a decision on what kind of business you want to have, you have to be realistic with who your audience is. You know, if um, not everyone can be Beyonce and also force feed classical music down people's throats, right? There's 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 a choice you have to make, right? Um, you got to figure out who and how big your audience is and then how to reach them. And I think that's the most important thing when you've got a small brewery and you can sell most everything you do in your tasting room and you have a direct consumer, you have so much opportunity then to indoctrinate people when they step inside your walls. This is what we're all about. This is the kind of flavors we do. This is, you know, who we are. You have the people interaction with your, with your staff in the tasting room asking, you know, what, what kind of beers do you guys make? And through that, you can kind of be evangelistic to whatever your craft is. You know, you see most lager brewers that are hot right now, I think have that approach where there is an evangelism to lagers and um, you get it by going in the door and in the brewery. That that buying decision is completely different than someone who's going to a local grocery store and uh, picking up a six pack for the weekend or whatever, like, you know? And I, th I think there's just this realization, I think where people had where it's like, it's not you can't you can't just do whatever you want right you have to have some realism in what's out there but i do see just like with anything in life this too shall pass right there is a change constant evolution that's happening and there's a pendulum swing 
where if you look in historically with beer, um, you know, I think pushing into the nineties, a lot of people were making classic styles. You have the classic, the funny, you know, colloquialism of like the 95 pub menu where everything was named after color. We have a blonde ale, a red ale, a brown ale or whatever. Um, and then it developed more into specialization as people wanted to have more words associated with their beers. And that allowed more license for brewers to go try more things. Um, and then there was this kind of gold rush that I think happened for maybe more recent times where people are like, holy cow, some people are making a ton of money with hazy IPAs selling direct to consumer. And that fueled a lot of people in the industry jumping on that bandwagon. Um, but I think that's kind of dropped out a little bit. Part of that is that it's not necessarily gone. I would imagine there's more hazy IPA now being sold than ever before, but it's because it's not this mystery on how to make it. Like, you know, if you hang your hat on creating a product that you think no one else can do, it's only a matter of time before somebody else can do it. Um, and so there's this change happening there too. If you saw like, with just if you look at IPAs in general with bitterness, you know, there was that, you know, was it like 2010? It was like, how bitter can you make this? Where it was like McKellar came out with that like 10,000 IBU beer or some shit like that, which is kind of crazy. Um, <laughs> all the way to now where it's like, you know, people are making beers that are very, very sweet or, um, you know, there's a pendulum balance there. It's like a thermostat curve. I think we're seeing opportunities now where um, there are pockets of flavor happening all over the U.S. that I've witnessed where um, I was just out in L.A. We're opening up our, our brewery here out there in uh, probably about a month or so, uh, finally, in downtown L.A. And um, West Coast IPAs have still remained very, very king in that area, but they're not nearly as bitter as they used to be. There's some, you know, I don't know how many would admit to it, but there's been some kind of learnings from the other side of the aisle, if you will. Um, <laughs> but then you also see loggers popping up and in, in nuggets everywhere. Um, you know, we're seeing a fair amount of um, enthusiasm around English beers. Like we we have a pretty steady Cascale program going on now, which I'm really excited about. And those things aren't necessarily going like we're we're a pretty big brewery. Though our Cascales are not even the ones that make it into can are not going to the grocery stores. They're in the places where people want to go to have those experiences. And I think the experience around those flavors is kind of all about the experience as a whole where, um, you know, in dining people are, are wanting to try more things, but it's also about the experience you have when you go into that restaurant. So it's, I, th I think the future is allowed for versatility. There's always people saying like the bubbles bursting and frankly, I don't until we're at the place where restaurants where you have great restaurants closing, um, then because it's tough, I don't think we're at a bubble burst. I think we're just the bar is getting higher on what it takes to stay open and be relevant. And um, our industry as a whole is really young. I would you know, it's not like we went from 1500 breweries to 10,000 breweries and all those 10,000 breweries have decades of experience making beer. Um, I think all those breweries are culminating experience now in their craft and how they're connecting with the consumer. So I think over time, you know, the the idea that beer is here is going to be here for a while. I would imagine we'll still continue to see some consolidation at the top. That seems to be a kind of a trend we've seen recently where you've got uh, some of the bigger breweries consolidating to be able to make market moves against the big guys where at first we saw the big guys buying up some small guys. And now we see some small guys merging to be able to compete with the big guys. 
Um, and there's going to continue to be stuff like that, but there's also, I think the local brewery of the corner pub is here to stay for some time. You know, uh, America kind of always wanted to be there. Culture always wanted to be there. Um, I think it just, you know, we had a, a big lag from prohibition that caught, you know, waited for everyone to catch back up. I don't think that's going anywhere. So that's kind of, I think we'll continue to see innovation in classic styles, continue to see people wanting to try various things and continue to see small breweries hang their hat on something, you know, where people like you still exist doing what you do. People who make all lagers still exist doing what they do. Um, and it's about creating that experience for people to come in and enjoy it. Um, you know, I think you just have to be realistic on that five-year plan where you can't assume that the bottom's never going to drop out and over leverage yourself. You have to do slow, steady growth. And if anything, we've learned from the people before us, it's that slow, steady growth has been king, um, you know, and to be realistic and, and about what you want. But I don't know. That's that's my take on it. Um, I'm really excited to see people excited about drinking beers. Um, and I still think there's an amazing amount of room for education. It's just you wouldn't imagine how many people you still give a beer to. They're like, oh, you know, I only like this or I only drink this. And you're like, well, here's not that. And they're like, oh, this is amazing. It's like, See, you, you like other things, you know? So I think there's a lot of opportunity out there. We're just getting regular people on board. The biggest question that I really don't know that's always fascinating to me. Um, and I think a lot of beverage people are asking themselves right now are like, what are younger people drinking? There's a hard realization that we're not young anymore. I mean, it's I mean, true. we're young, but, but, but we're not <laughs> in our twenties anymore. Um, and you know, it's something to understand is like asking what, what does a person who was me, you know, back in the day, what does a 23 year old want to drink now or 25 year old or, um, it's interesting to see what they're kind of going after. And it's always kind of surprising to me, but we'll see, you know? Um, and then those, those kids will turn into brewers and teach us stuff. That's just going to be how it is. I love that. I look forward to that. that <laughs> day. Um, yeah, I agree with all of that wholeheartedly. Um, I have a, a baby sister and she is 25 years old and I pretty regularly am asking her like, what are you drinking these days? And what are your friends drinking? She's like, I don't know, whatever's around. Like, you know, she, there isn't really, uh, she does not seem to have a really specific beverage that she gravitates towards. And from the conversations that I've had with her, that's kind of the same across her cohort. Um, so I agree with you. It'll be interesting to see, to begin to observe the patterns within, you know, Gen Z and younger and see what they're interested in um, and see how innovation begins to evolve within the beer industry um, over time. I feel like over the last 10 years, we've watched innovation go from being like flavor innovation um, mm -hmm. to being like process innovation. And then I think there was more recently kind of this intersection of both flavor and process and ingredients where you'd see innovation coming from uh, different types of like hop products being developed um, and things like that. So where innovation will go from here, I think is a really interesting thing to think about. Cause at this point, you know, flavors, pretty, how many different flavor I'm trying, but like how many flavor combinations can you come up with that are novel, you know? 
Yeah. Um, I mean, the hops are interesting because with the hop products, what that has changed is this, like basically the speed limit that is pre-described, right? Like, you know, there's a certain amount of things in your process. Like if you can only have so much T90 go into your whirlpool before you can no longer have a clean wort uh, stream, then that's your limit. That's how much you can put in your whirlpool. Well, when you start having flowable hop products that are not uh, you know, leaf material that changes the speed limit on your whirlpool also changes, uh, what you can accomplish in other parts of, you know, like as we see more people doing cool pooling, you know, like where there's, all right, let's put a heat exchanger between our cattle and our whirlpool. Then it changes where your bitterness is coming from. So then you have a new speed limit on where you can influence flavor. Otherwise, now you see people putting those products like in the fermenter, um, as they're knocking out. And because of that, you don't have as much problems with like sulfur compounds coming from the extra leafy material in your fermentation. So, you know, then you are able to push where hot flavor can go there. So those innovations are absolutely changing where the limits are as far as flavor introduction. But um, then I think on the other side, you're right. I still think there's opportunity out there where like, if you look at like IRI data, then you see like, People are, you know, a cream ale, like a flavored cream ale, you know, is got growth to it. You know, things like that, where it's like, is that really playing in this world? Or is that just what, you know, works in like a, a grocery store marketing? And it's really interesting to see how those are two separate things, but they're they're all beer. Um, a really weird thing, I'll tell you this, is that about a year and a half ago, we developed this line um, called Neon Cylinders. And it's a, uh, we call it an intensely fruited sour ale. It's a cattle sour, as you know, we've been making Athena, our our um our Berliner Weiss, we've been making that for a decade. Uh, um, and it's a four and a half percent Berliner Weiss. I love that beer, it's beautiful. Um, but then I was like, well, if people are talking about how things are too sour, I think there's a great lesson you learn from wine is that alcohol and acid are great balancing agents against each other. So Neon Cylinders is an 8% kettle sour that we just match the intensity with fruit. And it's now our number one seller in our tasting room on a regular basis wow. where like Tropicalia will always come behind that. And so will Classic City Lager, which are usually like our kind of our top two. Um, and that's, you know, our tasting room in the middle of a college town, which is, you know, to go back to like what 22 to 25 year olds are drinking or whatever. Um, it's really interesting to see like people identify with that. And we serve it in a stained glass, the traditional Kolsch glass. So it mm -hmm. is a neon cylinder. You see all the colors around the tasting room. It's pretty fun. Um, and, you know, just one of those things where it's like, don't take everything too seriously, you know, like yes. let's just have fun with it. And the the brand vibe on that is like Miami Vice meets drive the movie. It's just like, let's go have a, like the color, like all of them are named like, uh, magenta beans or hot pink or you know things like that where it's just this this kind of it's about a vibe instead of just hey here's a kettle sour with fruit um but i don't know there's a lot of it'll be interesting that. to see how that keeps to grow and what happens i guess we'll have to just keep keep watching i'm gonna have to maybe since i'm out here in atlanta at the moment i might have to go out there to athens and try some of these neon cylinders getting there it on 8% neon beer. <laughs> it's all about balance. We've got yeah, those exactly. and we've also got like a 4% rice lager. Um, yeah, you know, that sounds and lovely. in both of those, we like to use local ingredients. So, you know, you have your little, you have your little things you pick and choose. Yes. I love that. Well, I think we've been chatting for about an hour now. And I think I've got one last question for you to uh, wrap up 
this amazing conversation. It's a question that I was asked on my conversation, the last episode with Lindsay. And I believe Andrea asked her this question when she was being interviewed. And that question is, what is currently bringing you joy, Blake? Oh, man. My dog. Aw. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I really like um, the opportunities I get, like, connecting to people. Um, that's always kind of been my, my fun thing. Um, and that's my favorite thing about beer. And um, so that and then to bring it back to what we were talking about earlier, I think really from a job perspective, the most rewarding thing is seeing and helping people be better versions of themselves. You know, um, I say that with humility, not that I'm like the most amazing version of myself. You know, we're all in this growth trajectory, uh, but helping other people be able to see a dream come to life or an idea or give them the tools to be able to make this thing they've always wanted to make or tell the story or an event, you know, um, we're all like, I don't know, as you get older, I think you try to recognize that we're all on this human journey and we're all doing our best. Um, even the people that you don't like, or you think you disagree with, they're probably doing their best too, you know, and, uh, helping people along that journey and doing their best that, that probably brings me the most true joy that lasts where, um, I can see that, you know, I help, help the person, um, figure something out or be some, do something they're proud of. You know, that's, that's ultimately way, way cooler than making a barrel aged stout that people rate high and untapped, you know, that's, <laughs> that's, that's cool for about five seconds, you know, and then, um, it kind of goes away. So, you know, seeing someone that's like, man, I'm, I get to do this and I'm, I'm a better version of myself. That's, that's really the, the goal and the quest for sure. Oh, I absolutely love that and couldn't agree more. Well, Blake, it has been amazing chatting with you and I look forward to our conversations in the future. Um, thanks for taking the time to chat. I really, truly appreciate, you could have asked anybody. I appreciate the invite to talk to you, Avery. It's always a joy. No. Well, uh, everyone, Blake will be back on the next episode of this show as the host, having a conversation with a brewer of his choosing that will be on the air in two weeks. So make sure you tune in for that. Visit allaboutbeer.com and follow on social media. And to support journalism in the beer space, check out patreon.com slash allaboutbeer. I'm Avery Swanson of Keeping Together, and thank you for listening to the Brewer to Brewer podcast. First Tea is a proud sponsor of the Brewer to Brewer podcast. Some of the brightest brewers across the country have discovered the First Tea Advantage. Hill Farmstead, Sweetwater Brewing Company, and Angry Chair are among the many who have used First Tea's unique and quality teas and botanicals to create top-rate beers. First Tea focuses on being direct, flexible, and fast. You can find out more about First Tea's collaboration with brewers and tea ingredients by visiting firsttea.com slash blog. That's F-I-R-S-D-T-E-A dot com slash blog.